Turn to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We're going to continue our series here in 1 Corinthians. And I'm going to go ahead and read it here right at the very beginning. And so I'll give you just a moment to turn there. And then I'm going to read verses 1 to 9 of 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 to 9 of 1 Corinthians chapter 3. This carries over very directly from the end of chapter 2. It could have just all been one message, but we've got to stop it somewhere. I can't preach for three hours, right? And so, so this is a train of thought, though, that very much continues on right from the end of chapter 2. Picking up in chapter 3, verse 1. It says, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now you are not yet able, for you are still fleshly. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? Are you not walking like mere men? For when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not mere men? What then is Apollos? And what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed. Even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one, I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but God who causes the growth. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor, for we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. Harold Best once said this, a mature Christian is easily edified. A mature Christian is easily edified. Edified means to be encouraged, to, to be built up. What a rich statement. That a mature Christian is easily built up, easily edified. It doesn't have to be the, the best sermon in the world, the most insightful comment in conversation, the most profound prayer request. But they seem to be encouraged, built up, thankful. Uh, if you know people like that, I bet you're really grateful for people like that. Because it's just easy to be around them. And they just seem to always just be bubbling up with encouragement. Far too often, though, we are not easily edified. Rather, we are easily annoyed, right? easily discouraged, easily impatient, easily irritated, easily pulled into conflict. As, young one, man put, as one young man put it, 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 reflecting on this comment, he said, I sometimes find myself suffering from a sense of over-familiarity over with God in the gospel. Reading my Bible doesn't excite me. Listening to sermons becomes routine. Even worship feels common and mundane. At times like these, I crave something new and compelling to jolt me out of my spiritual rut. I figure that if only I had a better devotional book, a more powerful preacher, or a worship band with slightly more musical gifting, then my heart would become responsive again. And of course... Some books are more sound than others. Some sermons are more biblical. Some worship teams are, can have more richer music. And, and yet, what he reflects on, and I think it's true, is that often we think the solution is out there to kind of a spiritual apathy or a lack of growth. But often the, the obstacle is more internal. There's, there's something internal with us that is stifling our growth. Look at it from a slightly different angle. 1 Corinthians 3 puts a, a finger on why some people are stuck in spiritual immaturity. 
and the consequences that that can have for a church. And what we see is a particular consequence when a church is made up of people that are stuck in immaturity is, is division. It's, it's, it's conflict and division. What's the greatest cause of division in the church? What's the greatest cause of division? Some people might answer that and say, well, you know, it's music. People divide over modern music or more classic music. How loud or how quiet, whether it should be from a hymnal or not, whether we should sing more or whether we should sing less. And certainly those do become divisive elements. Uh, some it might be over missions. Should we primarily focus overseas on missions or more local? Should it only be focused on the gospel or should humanitarian aid be a part of that? Should we give a, a little bit to a, a lot of people or a lot to a few? Um, building projects can be divisive. How soon should we build? How big? Should we go into debt? Should we not? Should we pay cash? All those things can be divisive. But what we see here in 1 Corinthians 3 is that at the root of so many aspects of church division are, is immaturity. It's immaturity. Mature people can disagree on these other things. They can disagree on music and work through those things. They can disagree on different strategies. They can even figure out which doctrines are divide for issues that are significant and we ought to divide over and which can be overlooked and, and differences can, can be managed. Immature people struggle with that. So it becomes a divisive element when it doesn't need to be. Remember, that's the context here of chapter 3. From chapters 1 to 4, it's all dealing with division, hitting it from different angles. And here it, it zooms in on the role that immaturity can play in fostering division in a church. I want to remind you where this section began. Keep your finger in chapter 3, but look back at chapter 1, verse 10. Chapter 1, verse 10. It's where he began this section on division. And I want you to notice again the seriousness with which this is taken. Chapter 1, verse 10. It says, Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and there be no divisions among you. It's an exhortation, not a recommendation. It's to brothers and sisters in Christ. And it's, notice he uses this full title of, the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. It should, it should cause us to perk up and realize this is a significant issue. Flipping to chapter 3, I want to start walking through the, the way in which immaturity can play a role in division and what can be done about that. First part we'll see is the cause of their divisions, spiritual immaturity and, and worldliness could be another term we could use there. Look at verse 1. It says, I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to, in, as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. It, this language of spiritual men goes back to the end of chapter 2. As I mentioned, it could have just all been one message that carries over. Look a few verses up to the end of chapter 2, verse 14. It says, but a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually praised. But he who is spiritual appraises all things, Yet he himself is appraised by no one. There's only two categories of people given here at the end of chapter 2. It says those that are natural and spiritual. And if you were here two weeks ago when we went through that, pointed out that spiritual is not just like some disposition of somebody who's maybe more interested in spiritual things. It's do they have the Holy Spirit? 
Have they been made alive by the Spirit when they trusted in Christ? So the Holy Spirit dwells within them, and so they are described as spiritual versus this natural man that is the natural condition of, of all of us. Those are the only two categories. Biblically, those are the only two categories, in this sense, for the entire human race of natural or spiritual. Or, or you might say saved, unsaved. Saved, lost. Uh, theologically, you might say regenerate and unregenerate. Romans 6.23 would be a classic passage where it says the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. So we're either paying the wage of our own sin, our own rebellion against God through death apart from God forever, or we've accepted his free gift and eternal life in Christ. Those are the only two categories. Now, lest that that seem arrogant, and often that comes across as, as prideful to people. I want, you, I want to remind you that in chapters 1 and 2, it's, it's just cut the legs out from underneath pride by saying if you are in the one category of saved, it's not because you were smarter, better, figured it out. It's because God in his mercy saved you, and it's because of the glorious gospel. And so it's not an element of pride, but it's giving these two categories. Uh, Romans 8 9 is very clear about these categories. And it uses some of the same language. It says, however, you are not in the flesh. And that term is going to come up, so notice that. But in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. Belong to Christ or do not. Either have the spirit inside or, or, or do not. And it has to do with what have we done with Christ? Have we responded to Christ? Have we trusted in Christ? So in chapter 3... It's not introducing a third category of natural, spiritual, and then something here in between. He's talking to people that are in that category of spiritual. He describes them as infants in Christ. He describes them as brethren. So they're, he's assuming they're saved, but notice what he says about them. He says, you're not acting like it. And so I can't speak to you in that way. I can't speak to you as the spiritual men but as to men of flesh, as to natural men, as to infants in Christ. They were not, they were not acting like they had the Spirit. They, they were acting immaturely. They were acting as men of the flesh, as mere men, we would say at the end of verse 4. So what does that mean? Well, you probably don't have a hard time understanding as much the, the infant's part, especially if you've been around babies. There's things that babies do that you, as a young person or as an adult, would not do, right? Nine-month-old baby, they cry when they don't get what they want. They're sitting at a table, maybe, and they pull things down onto themselves. And you wouldn't say, grow up. Like, quit acting like a baby. Because they are a baby, right? That's appropriate for them to do that. It's frustrating sometimes as a parent, but it's appropriate. Now, a nine-year-old or a 19-year-old that did the same thing, you would say, you need to, you need to grow up a little bit. Right? Because things that are appropriate at an infant stage aren't as somebody gets older. And he's saying the same thing of them spiritually. It's like you're spiritual infants and you ought not to be anymore. Because they had plenty of time. Remember, these are people that he taught for 18 months. And then Apollos, a gifted teacher, came and spent time with them. We're not sure exactly how long. And some of them apparently have had exposure to 
Peter as well, because his name comes up, and yet they're not growing. And so he says, I can't speak to you as to spiritual. I have to keep giving you milk. You're not able to receive more significant teaching. Not different teaching. Milk and solid food is not talking about different teaching, but just more in-depth teaching on the, the same things. And he says, you're not, you're not able. You, you can't receive it. Because, he says, you are still fleshly. Look at verse 3. It says, you are still fleshly. You, you, are, you are acting as if you are in the flesh. You're not acting like a mature believer. They're cultivating these, these thoughts and actions that aren't consistent with their new life in Christ. And he gives a specific example. He says, for since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? Are you not walking like mere men? I want to talk a little bit about this term flesh and what this means because it obviously is a key part of the argument. The word flesh, it's from the Greek word sarx, and it means the, it can refer to a literal body, but most often as it's used here, it's of the immaterial part of a person that is in opposition towards God, a disposition that is towards sin and away from God. Notice the way it's used of this immaterial part of a person that is in opposition towards God and has a, a tendency, a disposition towards sin. In Romans chapter 7, Paul again writing here says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. He says, in my, in my flesh, there's not this desire to do good. There, there is a desire there. And he'll, he'll talk about that in, in, as the verses go on in Romans 7, but it's not from his flesh. It's, there's a new heart that's been given him. And so on one hand, he has a heart for God, for obedience, but there's a part of him pulling against that still. And you probably, as a believer, know that experience of wanting to do right and yet still struggling with sin. And that's this internal dynamic of still struggling with what it calls the flesh. Romans 8, 7 to 9. We read verse 9 a moment ago, but rewinding back to verse 7, it says the mindset on the flesh is hostile towards God. That's why we say it's this disposition away from God towards sin hostility towards God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so, and those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And then this is what we read a moment ago. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. It's this disposition towards sin, away from God. It's an inherited mindset of all of humanity. And yet when we come to Christ, we're given the spirit, still struggle with what he calls the flesh, but we ought to be more and more living in conformity to the work of the Spirit in our life. And what he's telling them here, and the warning we need to listen to, he says you're, you're still stuck in infancy, in immaturity, because you're still living in a way that is fleshly. As if you're still in this bent away from God. You're still living as mere men. That is the language that he uses. And again, he points specifically to this jealousy and strife in verse 3. He says, like, here's exhibit A. If you don't believe me, here's exhibit A, the jealousy and strife that's among your body. This attitude of wanting what others have, of tearing them down, of stirring up conflict. Um, he says that's exhibit A. Well, a common question might be with this, though, or an interpretation that can sometimes come up is, is this this third category, though? Can it be that there's, like, unsaved and saved, but there's also this category that sometimes is called like 
carnal Christian. Uh, okay, I'm saved, but nothing in my life reflects that. Am I just a carnal Christian? Um, carnal comes from the King James term for flesh that's used here. Um, and so it's to argue that somebody can have zero fruit in their life, nothing change, and yet say, well, I'm, I'm saved, but there's just no fruit of it, no evidence of it. That's certainly not the thrust of this passage. The intent of this passage is to confront those that are stuck in immaturity, not to give them a pass and say, well, this is just the category you're in. No, it's to confront them and say, brothers and sisters, don't, don't remain here. Don't be stuck here. It tells us that sometimes people can get stuck for a while in immaturity. And it's limited often not by lack of knowledge, but by a sin that is held onto, that is nurtured, and makes it so that, as he says to them, they were not able to receive kind of more teaching. Our own hearts can become not able to receive this. We can stagnate and be stuck in immaturity. So if there's times, and perhaps now is one of those times for you, where you feel like your time in the Word is, is dry or non-existent. You come to church, but you rarely, rarely get anything out of it. Praying is a chore. Uh, considering, it, it's time to consider, is there something in my life that is hindering growth? Is there, is there some pocket of sin that I'm not dealing with? It may be the same literal ones that are mentioned here of jealousy and strife, but it doesn't have to be limited to that. There could be something else that is unconfessed and undealt with, that is prolonged, and that is hindering growth. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, as he is talking to them about growth, I want you to notice where it begins. In verse 1, it says, Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all, and all slander, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word so that you, by it you may grow in respect to salvation. He's encouraging them to long for the milk of the word so that they can grow. But first, he says, you need to put aside. It's not talking about how somebody is saved, but it's talking about how a Christian grows or hindrance to growth. And he says, holding on to malice, this anger towards others, deceit, hypocrisy, where you're living two lives, you're pretending one way around Christians, uh, perhaps Christians in your college group or friends or family even, but apart from them living totally contrary, that will stifle spiritual growth. Envy and slander as well. It says to put those aside and then long for the pure milk so that you can grow. It's the same idea in, in 1 Corinthians 3. It says you're stuck in immaturity because you're holding on to this strife and division. You're not receiving truth then. You're not growing. And that is stirring up even more division. We need to heed the warning that comes up in 1 John that a continual lack of fruit, unresponsiveness, no desire to live for the Lord could be an indication that the person is not saved to begin with. 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 to 6 says, by this we know we have come to know him. How, how do we know? What's an evidence that we have come to know him, that we have been saved? He says, if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. 
By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. Saying that's an evidence that we know him. Now, let's be really clear. First John is not saying that you have to live a life of sinless perfection, never sin. No, First John in chapter 1 is really clear that if we claim not to, that we don't sin, we're, we're lying and the truth isn't in us. But as we're bringing our sin to the open, we're confessing it. We have a heart for obedience. We're stumbling and then we're confessing and we're walking with him. But rather, this is directed at the one who has no heart for obedience. That is a reason to question, for that person to question, do I, do I really know him? Do I really know him? So there's that category. Um, but what he's addressing here is the one who does know him. This is in 1 Corinthians 3. Does know him, but is stuck in immaturity because of these pockets of unconfessed sin that they are holding on to. Well, that immaturity is issuing out in division, as we've seen. And it's a particular type of division. It's just division over leaders. And, and that comes up again here. It came up in chapter 1. And then the same language comes up here again. Look at verse 4. It says, For one says, I am of, Apoll, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos. Are you not mere men? For that was the particular aspect of their division and strife was lining up under this human leader or that human leader. And, and so exposing the immaturity that's behind that, he then turns to the cure, which is a God-centered approach, a God-centered perspective on ministry. Rather than lining up under these various human teachers, he points out the role that those people play underneath the, the working of God. Notice the way it's phrased in verse 5. Put your eyes on verse 5. He says, what then is Apollos and what is Paul? Is that kind of a strange question? Right? I mean, if, if you have kids and a kid comes home and they say, Dad, I, I met a new friend. Her name is Bonnie. You wouldn't say, what is Bonnie? Right? You wouldn't ask a what question. You would ask a, a, who, a who question. Right? And yet, he doesn't ask a who question here. He asks a what. what he says, what is Paul? What is Apollos? Because he's trying to get them to think in categories. Look at the answer. He says, what are they? What is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants. They're servants. They're not your masters where you belong to Paul or belong to Apollos. Right? No, no you know, human teachers in that category. You belong to Christ. And these people are servants. They're servants through whom you believed. Not believing in Paul or in Apollos, believing through them in God. So it's moving from this human perspective to a God-centered perspective on church life and ministry. And it uses the analogy here of a farm. It's the first of, well, it'll end up being three analogies in chapter three, and it's, it's of a farm. So it says, what are they? They're servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one, Verse 6, I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. He'll go on to describe different things about them in each of these verses. He says first here that we had different roles. Planted, Apollos watered. It could be saying, you know, I, I shared the gospel with you and you responded, but, but then Apollos came and he watered and he taught you further. But it's God who is causing the growth. And if you've done any type of gardening or farming, you probably recognize some of this. So there's things you can do, right? You prepare the soil, you put the seed in, you water it, but there's things that you cannot do. You can't make it sprout. You 
can't make it grow. Can't determine how much sunshine it gets or how rainy it is or how warm the days are. There's so many things that are outside of your hands. And yet it grows. And he's saying that's the way it is with, with ministry. You can plant, you can water, but it's God who must cause the growth. So he says in verse 7, So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but God who causes the growth. Incidentally, these are the memory verses for chapter 3 because we want to emphasize the way in which it is God who causes growth. It almost sounds harsh. He says, neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything. Now, every believer is, is valued in the body. Um, every believer has their identity in Christ. So it's not saying there's no value there, but he's saying in terms of spiritual growth, they're not anything compared to the God who causes the growth and is the necessary component to cause growth. Verse 8, now he who plants and he who waters are one. So on one hand, they're not anything, because unless God causes the growth, their labor doesn't do anything. On the other hand, he says they're one. So why would you divide over these people that are one? They're one in a common goal of seeing growth, of seeing people come to Christ and mature. Why would you divide over these leaders then? Their effort might look different. One might plant, one might water, but, but the goal is the same. So, what does that look like today? Someone might share the gospel, and they might be stronger there. Uh, other, others, they, evangelism is a struggle for them, but, but they love to meet up with new believers and disciple them and help them grow. Uh, others, teaching adults scares them, but they would love to teach kids, right, and nurture kids. Um, others, it would be just the opposite. Others, they might take on a small group or counsel or one-on-one -on -one discipleship, but, but the goal is the same. The goal is one. The goal is seeing maturing believers in Christ. So we ought not to divide over those things. The end of verse 8, he says, each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. So he says, on one hand, they're not anything because it's God who causes the growth, but our labor is all one towards the score, and God rewards that labor. Just to get into details here about how he rewards, but it's certainly not on apparent success or results, but labor. It says each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. Here's why that's good news. You can't control the success of a various ministry thing that you might try, right? You might try a small group and nobody comes. You might Try to meet up with somebody for one-on-one -on -one discipleship. And, and I'm really encouraged to hear there's many college students that have kind of taken that on this year and, and some others outside of college but that are working with college students. You can't control how they respond to that time. They may fizzle out. And yet you're laboring. You're trying. We have people that are jumping into new roles for the first time here because of some holes that came up related to COVID. So people teaching Sunday school for the first time or a recent year or two, some new people on the board. It's the labor that's rewarded, not the apparent success. That's good news. That's good news. It says the reward is, is for the labor. And then verse 9, it says, for we are God's fellow workers. In the context, it's probably referring to the way in which Paul and Apollos says, we're fellow workers with one another, servants of God. And that's true of, of each of us here in the body as well. We're fellow workers with one another, dependent on the Lord to provide growth uh, in people's lives. And that kind of mindset, that God-centered perspective can promote unity. And the last phrase here, he says, 
You, says we're fellow, God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. Christian, don't miss that. You, you belong to God. You're his field, his building. You're his family. You're his adopted child. So if you are feeling discouraged in that first few verses because you're like, oh man, I, I am stuck in immaturity. I, I've been a Christian for a dozen years and I feel like I'm struggling with the same exact things as I was then. I'm not growing. I'm not serving. You're, you're beloved by God and you are his and he is relentlessly committed to your transformation. And that's why he uses language here to kind of jolt us. It says in Philippians 1.6, I'm confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ. He is relentlessly committed to your transformation. If he's begun this good work, he will continue it. He will continue it. Well, how should we apply this? What should we do? I'm going to give you three things. The first is a question to ask. Are there things in my life that are slowing down my spiritual growth? You say, yes, I'm in, I'm in Christ. I trusted in Christ, have responded to the gospel, and, and there's aspects of fruit, but, but I'm just stagnating, and I have been for a long time. But ask, are, are, are there things? Is there a, a hidden habit that nobody knows about, but is just weighing on your conscience? Is there bitterness in relationship? Is there a relationship that was severed and is struggling? That kind of bitterness can, can hinder. Is there Unresolved conflict, perhaps even here within the church body. Is there jealousy? God is so quick and ready to forgive, ready to transform, ready to help you grow. But don't, don't hold on to those things. Bring them, confess them to him. Next, because it fits in the context. Am I contributing to strife and division in my home or church body? Remember, that's what's happening here, and he's confronting them on it. It's not just their immaturity. It's their immaturity is leading to division and strife and conflict. And so we have to ask that as well. Um, the good thing about preaching sequentially through books of the Bible is that I'm talking about this not because there's conflict. Like, I'm not, like, trying to make eye contact with certain people here, right? Like, it's just the next passage, right? It's the next passage. But... But we have to ask that question. Are there things that I'm doing that are stirring up conflict, that, that is leading to strife? And especially during a time of extended hardship, I think that's good to ask. Whether it's in the home or, or church body, when there's ongoing hardship, we can feel like our nerves are kind of frayed and it's, we're more easily irritated and it can be easier to, to have conflict. So whether it's, whether it's covid you know, that they're just ongoing, like, oh, I just wish we could just come back to church and it would just be normal. I wish we didn't have to talk about these things. Whether it's that, and it can just kind of feel like your nerves are on edge, and it's, it's easy to get upset. Whether it's things in your own, your own home, when there's ongoing hardship. Perhaps it's financial. Uh, perhaps it's an adult child that is just straying and is a burden on your heart and it then strains your marriage as you think about it and talk about it. Perhaps over the last several years, I've talked with, with several that it's been uh, caring for a, a, a dying parent over a long period of time. And the strain in terms of time and emotional toll and, 
and everything that that puts on the rest of the family. And there's, there's, that's been a really common thing for several people um, over the last couple of years. And there's probably many more like that. Many of you that are in the position of caring for an aging parent that is near death and it puts a strain on the home. And it, and it can be easy for strife and division to come up through that hardship. Maybe all the more diligent to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace is the language of Ephesians 4. And then finally, look for ways to invest in others while trusting in the Lord to provide the growth. That's, that's the point in sort of a way of the flip side of, of verses 5 to 9. He's talking to them about not dividing over these things because these people are mere servants. God's the one who provides the growth. If you flip it to then the one who's trying to labor, invest in others, maybe again you're stepping out in something new, a new role of discipleship or teaching or counseling or working with kids or a one or something. You're investing in others. Look for ways to invest in them, but, but trust in the Lord to provide the growth so that if things are struggling and you're not sure why, of course, we evaluate. Is there something I could be doing better? But we also have to say, God, I'm going to trust you to provide the growth. And even if I'm not seeing it now, I'm going to trust you to provide the growth uh, through this labor. Let's pray.